And so I sat down in the roughest water that I, I think I've ever landed in. And like, it's not that big of a plane, so it's pretty big waves for those little floats. And I landed so far from the camp because I just wanted to be down on the water like sooner than later. Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes, and aviation adventures in British Columbia and Canada with your host, Warwick Patterson. Hey, everybody. On this episode of Flying BC, I chat with my friend Katie Cowley about her first couple years as a commercial pilot. For the past year, she's been flying on floats and wheels out of Sioux Lookout in Northern Ontario, living the bush pilot life. I caught up with her just as she was coming up to the 1,000 hour milestone. And we talked about her adventures and misadventures on her path through flight training, some of the lessons she's learned along the way, and what it's really like being a newly minted commercial pilot trying to gain experience. And just a note, about six minutes into the chat, we lost internet connection. So you have to excuse a little gap in the discussion where I didn't realize it had stopped recording. As always, please follow Flying BC on Instagram and Facebook at Flying British Columbia. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This week's winner of a Flying BC patch is pilotj.way. Send me your address to podcast at flyingbc.com. All right. Let's head up into Northern Ontario to catch up with Katie Cowley. Where, where are we finding you right now? Uh, right now I'm in uh, the middle of nowhere. It's uh, Sea Lookout, Ontario, which is uh, about a couple hours north of Kenora. It's like kind of the closest town most people recognize. So uh, ironically, if you actually look at the latitude, it's pretty level off with Vancouver and Whistler, but uh, it's incredibly cold here. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a town, maybe 3,500 people uh, that kind of fluctuates with tourists. So it's really big like fishing spot in the summer. We get lots of like flying fishermen camps, that kind of thing. Uh, so there's a lot of traffic for that. Um, and it's kind of known as like the hub of the north. Uh, so it services, I think it's 23 uh, First Nations communities that uh, all kind of link to this town. So like we're the one hospital for all, um, all those towns and like kind of everyone comes through here. Um, so yeah, there's lots of like lots of new pilots come here for experience, new doctors, nurses, cops. So there's actually quite a few young people around. And, uh, unfortunately, with COVID, I haven't met a ton of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's where your your commercial pilot career has taken you so far. Can you uh, yeah kind of take us take us back to the beginning? How did you get into um, aviation? What kind of took you in that direction? And how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I actually kind of, I moved out, uh, out of home pretty young. And so after finishing high school, I knew I was going to have to fund all my own education myself. So I wasn't really sure what I was ready to be so in debt for. Um, like every, like uh, at the time I was waitressing a lot and worked with a ton of waitresses. I had one or two degrees and like 50 grand of debt. And I was like, yep, doesn't seem like the right move. Uh, so for a while there, I was just kind of figuring out life and what I wanted to do and ended up in Whistler, got really into the snowboard scene. And uh, it actually kind of came from, I was watching a snowboard movie with some friends one day and we we're all kind of joking like, haha, one of us should go get our heli license so we can go heli skiing all the time. And it was just like, you know, haha, yeah. And then the next day I was like, hey, wait a second, maybe that is a good idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> So it kind of sparked the idea, and uh, so I started looking into a helicopter license and 
quickly realized I was way too poor to do that. <laughs> um, so I found that you could actually do a conversion. And uh, so I was like, okay, at, at the time I had zero interest in airplanes, uh, but I was like, okay, I'll go to my airplane license, work for a little bit so I have a bit of experience and then I can do the conversion and kind of break up the costs. And if I run out of money halfway through, at least I got my fixed wing license and can do something with it. Um, and there's lots of scholarships for the conversion, especially for women. Uh, so that was the original plan. And then I, you know, and I also fell for the whole, you know, get your commercial license in six months thing and <laughs> got into flying and like, A, I ended up loving planes a lot more than I thought I would. Um, so I got, I guess, more comfortable with staying in that. <laughs> and then uh, uh, it took probably almost five years from like my first fam flight to when I actually finished my commercial license. So by the end of it, I was like, yeah, I'm pretty done with school. I'm ready to go do something and so I kind of just fell into aviation a little bit that way um but uh yeah I I guess that's it's yeah, so what, what, were, what were some of the challenges there um getting your commercial license why did it take five years as opposed to six months which they promised you <laughs> um well money obviously was a big part of it so I kind of jumped in and um, I was like, oh, I'll figure it out along the way. And uh, so I kind of, I did my fan flight and started with ground school and went from there and was like, yeah, I can get student loans or any of that jazz. And uh, did, you know, just a couple flights. And I was like, I'm going to do the ground school first, get through that and then start flying. Um, and quickly found out that uh, student loans aren't uh, super accessible for uh, aviation students. Uh, I looked into applying for it and Basically, they base it off of how long you're in school. So they look at those schools uh, marketed six months kind of thing. And then they base how much they'll fund you off of that. So I think the maximum I could get was $5,000 um, if I applied for that. Um, so like the beginning, I did my family in 2013, I think. And then it was really part time in the beginning while I was figuring that out. Um, and then uh, started plugging away at private when I could. I was just worked a ton, I guess. And then I would basically go to school on my two days off. So at the time I was living in Whistler and I would commute down to Boundary Bay on my two days off and try to drill out like four days worth of lessons in two days and then drive back and go to work. So it was exhausting to say the least. And then, you know, you get a week of weather and then it's all of a sudden been two weeks since you've flown. So now you're reviewing stuff and, <laughs> and going back and forth that way. Um, and I actually had a big mishap with my private um, just with some of the paperwork and a uh, big reason why I changed schools and instructors. Uh, so I actually ended up redoing a rather large portion of my private license in Squamish. Um, uh. Yeah, which was a bit of a bummer, but like luckily I was planning to do commercial. So I was like, well, the hours all go towards it anyway. So it was just like testing fees. So I actually was so lucky to do two private uh, flight tests <laughs> and <laughs> passed both, but, um, wow. but the one had expired by the time I got my application in. I'm just trying to get paperwork back from an old instructor. Um, so by the time all of that was together, um, I thought as long as my written and my uh, flight tests were done within a year of each other that that was fine but it turns out the application needs to be done within that year as well so that little um, fine print got me um, so I redid a bunch in Squamish and then uh, we continued on with my commercial there and um, I was pretty fortunate part way through my training uh. and that's where we lost connection Katie was about to say that she was lucky enough to get a couple scholarships one of which was the Harbor Air Advanced Floatplane Scholarship, 
which directed her attention towards a potential career path on floats. Um, in my application, I was like, this is a, like, if I get the scholarship, I can go this route. Otherwise, I will not be doing this. Um, so originally, I'd kind of written that off. And uh, actually, that year, they, like, uh, just so it was different associations working together with the scholarship. So, like, whoever was supposed to announce it, announced it, like, months late. So I was like, oh, like, I didn't get it. And I was like, I need to make a plan outside of floats. Um, so I was going to go down to, or my goal was to go down to Africa and I really wanted to work in like anti-poaching units um, to try and save elephants basically. So what I wanted to do, yeah. so there's lots of little, like the parks will hire people and they fly little ultralights around and uh, basically look for poachers. Uh, so I thought that would be a really cool job to do. And uh, my husband Toby's really, he loves Africa. So he was on board with going there too. Uh, and then uh, I got the call one day that I got the float scholarship and I was just kind of baffled because I was like, I was sure I'd moved on with life. <laughs> like, I, had, I was like, for sure, I didn't get it. So I was like almost taken off guard at first. Like, it, was, it was a weird experience. And I was like, well, I guess I'm becoming a float pilot. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess I, like, I wasn't too set on that um, right off the bat. But then... Uh, I, I've kind of been, I guess my long-term plan has been changing constantly, so I don't really know. Like, I've thought about doing firefighting, I, you know, I still think about the Africa thing. I, you know, tried to go to New Zealand, they have a couple float operators there, so I tried to do that. So I'm kind of all over the place at the moment, um, but that's how I ended up in Lutz. <laughs> yeah, so you did your training in Squamish, or you finished your training in Squamish. Um, your, was your first job for Sea to Sky Air there? Yeah, so I... I got pretty lucky with that one because um, I was kind of committed to staying in Squamish that summer, like for other commitments. Um, so I knew I had to, if I was going to get a flying job, it kind of had to be nearby, which as everyone knows, you know, Vancouver's probably like the hardest place to get your first job if it's not instructing. <laughs> um, and uh, so then that posting popped up and I was like, oh, that couldn't be more perfect. Like, uh, you know, it was on 172. So like, it's so nice that like your first job's on the same plane. So it kind of takes one element out and it was at my home airport, which, you know, is still a challenging airport as you know, but you know, I was so used to it. So I was like, well, that makes me a perfect candidate. Like they know I know how to fly in Squamish. Um, so it just took a lot of factors out so I could go in and be like, okay, I can kind of learn what like the job side is all about and, you know, learn like all the things you don't learn in school. And I can just focus on that. Um, and I think, you know, it made sense for them to hire someone who was from that field, whereas you know, the other people they hired were, one was from out of province and one had done a lot of training in Chilliwack and hadn't necessarily been to Squamish. So um, apparently there was a ton of applicants and they actually had quite an extensive interview process. I was surprised. <laughs> so it was like a phone interview, an in-person interview, and then I feel like a follow-up or something, and then like a whole written thing you had to send in. Um, so it worked out perfectly that way and, you know, flying in Squamish is beautiful around all the mountains, so. And that's a lot of in interacting with clients too, because it's, it's mostly sightseeing and so yeah. you're kind of having to do safety briefings and stuff like that. Yeah, and some of their turnarounds, as I'm sure you know, are, are pretty quick. Um, so there was one day, I think I did 14 flights in one day and like, they're only 15 minute flights, but so you're doing a safety briefing, you're doing a weight and balance, you're doing the whole thing every time, like, so it really got me dialed in that side of things which is good a lot of takeoffs and landings which I guess are always good too <laughs> yeah yeah and then I think you had a job lined up in New Zealand right you went to New Zealand yeah but that didn't quite go to plan yeah so I'd always like um even 
pre-aviation, I was I always wanted to do like a back-to-back -back winter and go to New Zealand or Australia. Um, so it was just like this thing. I was like, you know, if I if I never do it, like while I qualify for like the working holiday visa, like it'll be one of those things I look back on that I'm mad I never did. So I was like set determined on uh, getting to one of those countries. And I probably applied to every company in New Zealand. Like I'm sure that whole country knows my name by now. Um, <laughs> but uh, and it, it was challenging because obviously they have a different licensing program and um, to convert like to convert your license uh so i guess they're written i have six or seven written exams for their commercial license and uh, they're a lot more expensive than ours uh, so to convert with like lower time hours you need to do like all of those exams plus the flight test plus you actually have to be like kind of recommended for the flight test by flight school so you obviously have to go to a few flights get recommended and they do have a few different maneuvers and stuff you need to learn that are different from our uh, exams and uh, I had actually misread the converting rules, so I thought it was only you only had to do the air law exam, and then once you had the 250 commercial ops hours, they put it, then you wouldn't have to do any exams. That was like just under the, I think I had 200 commercial ops hours from CSKY. Hmm. Um, so I was like, okay, I just have to do the air law exam, that's no big deal. And then I, I was doing all the paperwork, sending my logbook, and I got, you had to actually had to mail my logbook to New Zealand and then they go yeah. through it and mail it back with this little sticker and then they're like, nope, you don't meet the qualifications. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> what do you mean? Um, and uh, so basically I, they clarified for me that it was, no, you have to do all the written exams and all this. Uh, but I could do a validation permit, which is basically a company says they want to hire you and they can get a validation permit for six months and you can fly on your Canadian license in New Zealand for that like company specifically, like I wouldn't have been able to fly any other ones. Um, but trying to convince somebody overseas that you're a great hire to do that for is quite challenging. <laughs> um, and I like, I sent a, a bunch of places, like I was trying to really, I knew I was a low time pilot and trying to get attention. So I sent uh, some resumes in like boxes of donuts and stuff delivered to the address. <laughs> and um, I actually got super close. I got an interview with uh, Volcanic Air, which was a float job out there. That would have been really rad. Um, and I sent them, uh, I sent them a box of donuts with my resume on top that had like a cover page to it that said like, this, uh, these donuts came all the way from Canada. And then when you open it up, it says, just kidding, but your next pilot could and had my resume behind it. And I guess <laughs> the chief pilot wasn't there when they uh, showed up. So the whole staff got it and they were all amped on the whole idea. And they called up the chief pilot who was away at the time. And they're all like, so we've uh, collectively decided that you need to hire this girl. Um, so I got an interview with them. And they seemed super stoked, but they had actually been burned before by hiring someone like just based on references and not doing a check flight. So they had a policy in place. You had to do a check flight first. And obviously I wasn't in New Zealand. So it was kind of like, they're like, we'll consider it. And then I'm assuming some, they hired someone else kind of thing. Um, and then I met a Kiwi who was flying out here and he helped uh, put me in connection with uh, Auckland seaplanes out there, uh, which had a crazy high limit, uh, like for their insurance to fly their float planes but they had a little sightseeing ops on Wahiki Island that was on a 172 still um which was kind of cool it was a little short little grass strip that was like a pretty decent hill <laughs> it's the only sloped runway like that I've seen and super windy like Squamish kind of thing it was just up on the peak of a hill it's a little grass strip that's clearly somebody built themselves and didn't put directly in the wind <laughs> <laughs> um so he was stoked and he hired me on 
and uh, and he was willing to do the validation permit and everything. And so I, my plan was to do the validation permit for the six months, and then by then I should have my 250 commercial ops hours, and then I would do the flight test and get my conversion afterwards. Uh, and then that way I could stay longer if I wanted to. Um, and then he ended up hiring for the float side of things to um, two Kiwi pilots, but they were also in Canada at the time. So I ended up meeting with them before going down, which was kind of cool. Um, but uh, note to anyone listening that uh, if uh, someone's hiring that many pilots from out of country, it's probably a red flag. <laughs> uh, when I got there, it was like, it was a loose program to begin with. And he had forgotten to send in the paperwork for my validation permit. And I, I was like, oh, that's going to be months, you know, used to transport Canada and um, and luckily, like the CAA, which is their civil aviation authority, is way more on it, and they reply to emails within like a day or two. Uh, so we managed to like within a couple days get a validation permit for me, which I thought was like unheard of, knowing Transport Canada. Um, yeah. So then that worked out, and then you know housing was really crazy on Waikiki Island because it's a super touristy spot, and. You know, you're supposed to know people and that kind of thing. And uh, then I finally got a house and I, I bought a little motorbike while I was down there because it's such a small island. I was like, oh, it's perfect. It's a warm country. <laughs> like going down there for summer, I'm going to do that. And so I was like, oh, all the pieces are just falling into place. Uh, and then we had, had a trip planned for like a year in advance to go to Africa um, for December. So I went down to New Zealand for two weeks in November to get kind of the house and everything set up and then the idea of the company was I was going to do like my checkout like the CAA for the validation permit comes in does like a little flight with you um, basically a flight test and uh, he showed up and I hadn't done any company training which I had also thought was kind of bizarre and then uh, um, and he's like well we we can't do like do this without any training like it's not my job to train you kind of thing so that that uh, like whole exam fell through and then he was like okay I guess we'll have to do it like in January when you get back which because he wanted me to be like ready to go for January um, so then I left Africa and you know Africa we were it was like camping in the middle of nowhere so I very rarely had any contact with the world it's like the most off-grid I've ever been but every like week or so we'd come into a city where I could get some wi-fi and uh, halfway through my trip I got a message from like one of the other pilots at the company being like oh no don't worry like so and so is really interested in you like hit them up and I was like what does that mean <laughs> and I hadn't heard uh -oh. anything <laughs> from anyone and I guess the company had gotten their um operating certificate pulled um basically they found the ceo unfit to run the company and they were given the ultimatum like hire a new ceo or shut down and they chose oh, shut man. down so now and i'd already signed a lease for a house and everything so i was like well, i'm kind of committed to going back like i just got a, my whole life set up there and it's such a small island it was the only aviation company there so it's not like i could bug another company to be like hey i'm here now give me a validation permit <laughs> Um, which obviously the validation permit's tied to the company, so it's like you know, I was there without a license, no nothing. Um, so it was a bit of a bummer. I got to do a few training flights uh, before we left to Africa, um, so that was kind of kind of fun just to see like that runway was like totally different than anything I was used to. So it was a good little experience. But then uh, I just ended up bartending again for a bit, which I was kind of bummed about because I was so excited to get out of that industry <laughs> and ended up going back to it. Um, <laughs> And then I think we were supposed to come back 
for May, I think it was. And then, uh, so I was applying for jobs only because I had lost that one. And uh, uh, I was applying and I was ho-humming about the job in Ontario because the posting had been up on there and I'd done the interview and I'd asked them to give me a couple of weeks to think about it. And, uh, and then I ended up taking it being like, oh, Toby will stay in BC, I'll go there. It'll just be a summer, you know, and I'll get some experience and then go back to BC. And then COVID happens and then we cut our lease like even earlier again. We had already like shortened it after the job thing, then cut it again. <laughs> I was like, I felt so bad for the landlords. I was like, I'm so sorry. Like, this really wasn't my plan. Uh, and we rushed back and we got on like one of the last flights before New Zealand went into their like full lockdown. And they were really good about handling COVID. They locked down for, originally it was going to be two weeks of just full lockdown, like groceries only, one person from the household, no one, like just full on. And uh, there really wasn't that many cases. I was so surprised how serious they took it. Um, so, you know, the, the morning before our flight, like we couldn't get food or anything. We had to like buy stuff the night before and then took off to Canada. Um, and, and I think they ended up getting extended to three or four weeks of that, but it seemed, it seemed perfect. Like they, they seemed back to normal life, like within the country, obviously no international travel, but I think, uh, a lot of other countries should have followed their lead. <laughs> We'd be in a better place yep. right now. <laughs> um, and then, uh, but, sorry, go on. Yeah, you, you kind of lucked out. So you, you came back to Canada to a job. Yeah, I know. So it was um, like, and <laughs> it was perfect timing. Yeah, it was a blessing in disguise because I wouldn't have been applying for jobs otherwise. So then I came back and then uh, with everything happening, Toby ended up coming out here with me and then I was lucky enough to keep on, uh, like stay on for the winter. And then, uh, so I've kind of committed to next summer, like so that I could keep my job over the winter. And uh, yeah, couldn't have worked out better. It was so crazy to like see all these people getting laid off. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm the one with the job. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me about this, this job in Ontario. You've kind of gone the traditional Canadian bush pilot route. You're getting yeah. experience up north. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a different world. I feel like I'm kind of back in the wild west of flying. <laughs> um, so like housing, the, there's us servicing so many uh, First Nations reserves. So uh, pretty much like we have a little zone here. And uh, as soon as I leave that zone, like I have no reception, like anywhere that I go, they can they have their own like cell phone company here that uh, I think services some of the reserves, but I haven't made the switch over. So it's once you go, you're on your own and you got kind of no contact, um, which for like, you know, my first float job ever was kind of like a crazy thing and dealing with the different weather here that I think is that's like the most drastic difference is uh, just how like fast weather can move through here. So it's like, you know, we can have lightning and crazy rain for one minute. And then like five minutes later, it's bright and sunny. You're like, okay, ready to go. <laughs> um, so that's been the biggest adjustment for me, I would say. Um, but it was, it was perfect. Cause I, and I did my training with our bear. Yeah. Well, um, can you hear the dog's squeaky toy at the moment? A, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go take it away from her and I'll come right back. <laughs> okay. All right, we got the peanut butter Kong, so hopefully we got. Oh some yeah, time. That's, that's the trick with my dog too. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what was I saying? The weather. Oh, okay. So yeah, so my training with Harbor Air, um, because obviously it was in the ocean and dealing with YVR and then all the high altitude lakes, like it was a lot to take in. Like I feel like 
when I did my first like seven hour rating because you, you know, they're just trying to cover everything in within the seven hours for you that it's a pretty quick little course. And I left it being like, oh yeah, float flying so easy. And uh, you know, had this big ego, like it came so naturally I thought. And then when I got into the 50 hour course and they started like giving you real challenges, I was like, holy, there's so much more to this than I thought. And it's like kind of scary that people can fly with just seven hours of float experience. Cause like, I'm sure I'm not the only one that left with this big ego after seven hours um so yeah with harbor air it was it was a lot to take in and it's you know they're trying to get as much into it as possible so they're never like letting you get comfortable it's like okay you're good at this we're moving on like new challenge uh so by the end i was actually like a little overwhelmed and uh like almost a bit intimidated by the industry i was like holy i don't know if i'm ready for a float job like hopefully it'll be okay and uh getting out here it was really nice because obviously there's no ocean where I am, so it's all lakes, so it kind of took, unless you're landing on a river, like for the most part, there's pretty minimal current, you know, so you're just dealing with wind. There's no mountains out here, so it kind of took that aspect out, especially for dealing with the weather. So it kind of took a few of the big factors out and just let me focus on, you know, getting my foot in the door with float flying and getting comfortable with that and, you know, dealing with wind and docking, not dealing with wind and current and docking kind of thing. Right. Uh, so I think it's that perfect stepping stone of like now that I feel kind of really competent in those areas I know like the ocean will be kind of a new challenge when I go back but at least I can kind of just focus on that and the rest should be fairly comfortable uh, so I definitely recommend it in that sense of just it's kind of same as like my flying out to the sky I was like oh same airplane same airport I can just focus on this other part it's like I kind of like taking out some of the factors so you can just like work on this like one new challenge rather than just like overwhelming yourself with a bunch of new challenges uh so it was really good that way and did a quite a bit of flying considering there was COVID um we were mostly servicing a lot of the reserves went into lockdown um so the one reserve slate falls owns my company um but they normally have a road in and out it's like a two and a half hour drive to get out uh so a lot of them like would just drive back and forth for things that they need uh but with covid that road was actually locked down they didn't have anyone coming in or out so we were flying like a ton of groceries like i think one of the first flights i take along on when i got here was all toilet paper <laughs> of course <laughs> like, during that whole craziness <laughs> and it's just cramming as much toilet paper as you can fit in the plane <laughs> um so we did a lot of a lot of that and I first got checked out on the 182 which is normally like our camp check plane so when we have the fishing camps and have the tourists you go around check if you know anybody needs anything do they need more bait do they need more ice do they, you know and then you're just and bringing them fuel and that kind of thing um so I got checked out on that did a couple little trips back and forth of just like cargo and then you know they gave me my first passenger uh, and then pretty quickly they trained me on the found, which I had never heard of before coming here. Um, but it's a cool little plane, Canadian made. Um, yeah. And uh, it's uh, not like a ton bigger than a 182, but it, it can take, like I can take like a thousand pounds in it and it's got an extra seat in the back so you can take four passengers with you. And it, it's got some quirky challenges, particularly with the starting of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, seems that was quite the barrier for me to break through, but got it dialed now. Um, but because that plane is so small and can carry so much, it's kind of for the type of runs we were doing, it's the most used unless, it, you know, unless we had too many groceries or whatever carrying that it didn't fit in the van, then it might go up to the beaver of the caravan. Um, so I ended up doing a ton of flying. Um, and like kind of all over the place we get random charters 
and there's no like I, I don't know they're pretty like once you're checked out you're checked out so it's like okay you're going to Pacanchicum today and you know I'm like five minutes before the flight I'm like where is Pacanchicum <laughs> like searching it up on board flight figuring out where I'm going um you know and then obviously you can't as soon as you're gone no reception so you really just got to figure it out for yourself uh so that kind of thing was really cool and you know even I one day they're you know hustling me out like okay you need to go to this cat lake next and I hadn't been there yet and I realized like in the air I was like I have no idea where the dock is in cat lake like I know where the airport is from four flight but I have no idea what dock I'm supposed to be going to and I actually had to radio like another um, plane in the company to be like where am I going and he's like oh you know this side you'll see <laughs> um <laughs> So it's definitely like a bit of throwing you into the deep end, but you learn a lot really fast and becomes and pretty self you know, self sufficient and take a lot of responsibility. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. And once you've been to a few of them, you kind of get the program, and um, you know, like I don't know, you get used to it. I guess it's a cool little world. <laughs> yeah, I think you said I talked to you in sort of the fall, and you said you'd put in like 350 hours or something on floats. Yeah, I did. Um, I think by the time I went back to BC, probably like, yeah, 300. I think I have that's pretty, near, that's a little a, over 400 hours. That's a pretty solid, now. solid summer on floods. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. And like, especially considering, you know, everyone's kind of like, oh, you don't even know. Like when we have tourists, it's like crazy busy. Right. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I feel like I'm flying a lot. <laughs> but I guess, yeah, when it's tourists, cause you do like, you still have all this other stuff, but then you fly the tourists in the morning. So it's like, you're up at the break of dawn. So the tourists want to get, you know, up there for as much of the day as possible. So you're taking off first light with them and you get all the tourists and that stuff done in the morning. And then like all this cargo stuff kind of happens in the afternoon. Um, so yeah, I guess there's a whole other aspect to it. I haven't even had to deal with yet, but, uh, hopefully this year we'll see. Yeah. And so now, <laughs> now they, uh, they pulled the floats off the found and put some wheels on. So you're doing winter flying off, yeah. off of gravel strips and stuff. Yeah. So like the Sioux Lookout airport is actually a pretty big airport. So that's, um, paved and, and like huge, like tons of room. Uh, but all the strips up north are gravel, but uh, granted they've kind of been snow covered the whole season. So I don't know, it's a stretch to say I've landed on gravel and mostly landing <laughs> on snow, I guess. Well, that's right. Um, but they're, sh yeah, yeah, it's still cool, but they're uh, shockingly well maintained. I was kind of surprised by that. Like all the reserves have somebody who's, I guess they, it's obviously important to them. So they have someone clearing the runways and a lot of them have little terminal buildings, which I thought was just bizarre that are nice and heated and, you know, a big thing for me, I, I was all worried all summer because uh, obviously I was landing at docks. So I never had bathrooms anywhere I went, even if it's like two hours north. And uh, I was all worried. I was like, what am I going to do when it's negative 30? Like, I can't just like go hide in the bush. <laughs> um, and then I was so pleasantly surprised when I started flying. I was like, oh my gosh, terminals. They have real bathrooms. I was like, this is such a luxury. <laughs> <laughs> the little things you don't think about. Yeah. Yeah, big time. <laughs> Um, but it's been cool and uh, we serve as a mine as well and so we'll fly like people and a lot of groceries in and out of there um, and they plowed a little ice strip on the lake so I got to land on that recently which is kind of neat to add to the resume. <laughs> nice. So what um, in the mornings are, you, are your planes hangered or do you have to uh, chip the ice off and no. heat them up? Yeah we have uh, like wing tents and an engine tent um, and then uh, you heat it up with like the Herman Nelson kind of thing and pop that inside to heat 
the inside a little bit. And uh, shockingly, the Voshok, even though it's made in Ontario, it is a super cold plane. They clearly <laughs> didn't think through the heating system too thoroughly. Um, so definitely, I bundle like crazy. I think the, like all the guys make fun of me because I wear so much more clothing than anyone here. But <laughs> <laughs> I like to be warm. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in the mornings, we'll come in and get everything heating. And uh, usually the tents do a pretty good job. It's like, you, you know... The wings are usually good. It's not too often you're chipping off ice. Um, I've had a couple of flights where I've gone up and got some ice while flying, and then you have to get, you know, melted on the ground. Like, we don't have a hold the icing systems where they're melting and drying it off by hand, which can be a pain. Um, we do have, like, a big hangar, but they, they do maintenance on, like, other companies as well. So we can't always just pull in the plane, but if it's uh, real dire, we can bring the plane inside, nice. <laughs> which is a treat when that happens. Yeah. So are the people you're flying with, are they sort of other young people too, or you you have some people you can learn from who've been up there forever? Um, our, well, there's quite a few new pilots right now. Our, our chief pilot's been around for ages. Um, he's from this area, so he's been flying here for years. Um, and uh, so he's really knowledgeable and is who does our PCCs and all that kind of thing. Um, so he's a good one for that. And like most of his time is float or skis. Like even when he was doing my tailor checkout with me, he's like, oh, like you probably have more tailored them. <laughs> no, maybe not more, but you know, he's like saying, he's like, it's always on skis. I land on wheels so regular or so rarely. Um, but he's definitely one you can ask. Uh, and it's funny, one of the guys up on the reserve, he actually used to own the company like back in the day. And he always comes and meets us and picks up cargo and he'll tell me stories from way back when it was real loose. <laughs> and, uh, um, but other than that, the other pilots that are flying like the most regularly with me, they're, um, you know, kind of first or second jobs. Um, I would be like, I guess the greenest in the company at the moment. Um, in the summer, we had one other guy who was newer than like even less hours than me, but we're all like kind of same category, I guess we could fall into or all right. like under 2000 hours kind of thing. If flying here in the mountains, we always have valleys to follow and there's kind of like you, you navigate by terrain a lot. What's it like yeah. navigating up there where there's like so many lakes and so like not, no real terrain features. Are you using yeah. GPS a lot? Or? <laughs> yeah, a lot of GPS. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Like, I think the guys who've been here forever, like, you know, they can recognize certain lakes. So when I was got, when I got here, I I couldn't even see like the contours in the land because I was so used to mountains. Like now I've been here, you, you know, in nine months, I think. And now I look at it I'm like, oh, look at that little hill in the distance. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm seeing the little hills now. <laughs> Um, so yeah I use a lot of GPS and I got myself for flight like that's the first time I treated myself to that because I kind of just wanted a backup because it is so like everything looks so similar there's so many little lakes and you know it's easy to get backwards especially if you're going somewhere new like uh, it can definitely be a challenge and props to people who can do it without any of that stuff here but um I guess I think in the industry, once you kind of get working, most of them are gonna, most companies are gonna have a GPS of some sort in there. So, right. yeah, until they fail, it's definitely, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I pull up my four flight. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, but yeah, half the reason I got my four flight was for that because I was worried. I was like, there's just so many little lakes and they all look the same. <laughs> At least if you're on flights, you can like, just land. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, try to figure out what to do. 
And yeah, I have to, I have just landed on lakes, like if weather's coming in or something, I've just set her down while I figure out what I'm going to do instead of burning gas in the sky. Like I'll just set her down and be like, okay, what's my next step? Do I go home? What do I do? <laughs> <laughs> right. So have you had any big, uh, any, any moments or anything, any, anything happened where you learned uh, a flying lesson from that, like weather moving in or not pushing your luck or maybe pushing your luck? Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely, it's, uh, you're always kind of pushing your boundaries a little bit here. A big one for me to get over was visibility because obviously I was used to the mountains. If it was bad viz, like you just don't go because you don't want to end up, you know, cornering yourself in a canyon. But here, because it's so flat, you can, you know, I'll fly in much lower visibility than I would back home. Um, so that was a weird one for me to get used to because, you know, as soon as I would get in low viz, it was like the anxiety coming up that I would get back in BC. And I've got, definitely gotten more comfortable with that and, uh, you know, glad I did an instrument rating before coming here because then I kind of kind of fall back on my instruments a bit more confidently. Um, but as far as like weather goes, there's the <laughs> most wild day I guess I had so far. Um, in the summer, I went out to this place called Long Dog, which is uh, a little tiny reserve. I, I swear there's like 12 people there. <laughs> I don't know how they stay a reserve, but they're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it's about uh, like a two-hour flight from here in a straight line kind of thing. So when I left, weather was great, all good, and then I was flying back, and you know, it was getting a little darker, a little more ominous, and uh, and getting closer to home. There was kind of one storm ahead of me, so I kind of changed courses a little bit to get over the lakes at least. So I could there's kind of Luxools, like the big lake um, lake system near here, and you can kind of follow it right back to Sioux if you have to. It's not definitely not a direct line, but then at least you can stay over top of water. So you know, as I'm seeing the weather, and like it's kind of cool here because it's so flat, you can see the storms all around you. Like all summer, you're seeing lightning storms, and you, you know you just work your way around them. Hmm. Um, so you know, I was getting more of those, and then I was flying over a camp that's uh, pretty close to the zone, uh, but it's like a good like. I guess they're friends with the company, so everyone's like, "Oh, have you ever heard weather? You can always go there," kind of thing. And uh, I was just tuning into the ATIS for uh, Sea Lookout, and I was listening to it, and it was like, oh, 38 knots gusting. And I was like, oh my gosh. And like, as I'm listening to it, like, the whole, I just hit a bump, and like, everything in the plane hits the roof. Like, my phone goes flying. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, where did this come from? So I was like, quickly, you know, as soon as I had 38 knots, I was like, all right, quick U turn, and like, back to that camp. Um, and it was picking up so fast. I couldn't believe how fast it kind of rolled in even over top of that cabin and so I sat down in the roughest water that I, I think I've ever landed in and like it's not that big of a plane so it's pretty big waves for those little floats and I landed so far from the camp because I just wanted to be down on the water like sooner than later um, and landing went well I was actually super stoked how well I'd done on that but then I had the longest slowest taxi through this wind to get to the camp because I'm just fighting like a 38 knot headwind on the water wow. um, so I probably taxied for like 15 20 minutes to get to the dock and then when I finally got to the dock they have two docks at this one camp and so I'm getting the one that we always 
always go to and the other dock was starting to like break off on one side so one of the guys who's working there um he's got the tractor out and he's trying to like pull that dock in and then meanwhile i'm like hey how am i gonna get on this dock that like sticks out in the channel it's kind of like in a tight channel so it can be kind of rowdy in there on a good day <laughs> and then uh you know i get up to the dock shut down and i got on with one rope and i was like perfect i took like a super long rope so i was like i'll get to the dock like one way or another but then the wind like uh, something i had hadn't really ever dealt with the wind was too strong i couldn't pull the plane in so i had the plane like probably you know five to eight feet out on a rope like wrapped around a cleat but i couldn't actually pull it in like it just wasn't strong enough and so i'm like i was fussing with it for like 15 minutes and then finally the guy who's dealing with the other dog he comes down and he's trying to help me so i'm getting extra ropes throwing them to him and then we have both of us trying to fight the waves and wind and pull this plane in and uh he broke off his cleat during it and it you know we wrangled with it for ages and i was like soaked to the bone in like two minutes <laughs> it's just boring rain and we finally got it in and like then I go to help him with his dock so he had a boat tied to the end of the dock and literally had the engine running to like push the dock back up like upstream so he has me in the boat like throttling so that he can pull in with the tractor like the other rope and then something else broke and it was just like wow. he just gave up he's like I'm just gonna leave the boat running there to hold it until like this passes <laughs> and then uh so I wander up and, you know, we're chatting. He's like, oh, yeah, I wonder if you, like, could have just gone to the beach there. And I, like, look to the right and there's, like, a perfectly protected little beach that's just so calm. And I was like, oh, that would have been so much smarter. <laughs> like, that's, that's what experience what teaches you. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, uh, so, you know, I always scan the whole area. <laughs> Don't automatically go for the dock sticking out in the middle of the channel. <laughs> and I was like, that oh, was so stupid. I could have just been laughing, like, just cruising to this little beach, no problem. <laughs> and it would have been so protected from the wind. <laughs> um and yeah, so I went in and the owners of the camp, like they obviously didn't have any tourists because of COVID. So it was just the owners of the camp, like this older couple. And I just went and hung out with them and their dogs for a couple hours. And then, you know, went out and checked the weather and kind of messaging my boss back and Sue being like, how's the weather looking there? Like, what is it reporting? And like just before night, I was, I was able to get back. It was pretty marginal condition still, but the wind had at least chilled out. So I was able to get back there and, uh, I stay at home for the night instead of some random cabins. <laughs> I got lucky, I guess. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're going to be there for another summer, you said? Yeah, I kind of, I yeah. told them, I guess it's just like, no, we don't have a contract or anything. It's just a word. But I, I told yeah. him I would stay for summer to basically keep my winter job because he doesn't need all of us for winter. It's a lot slower. So, right. um, so yeah, that was kind of the dealio. Well, it so sounds like you're having fun. Another summer yeah yeah and it'll be a good experience and hopefully you know when i go back to bc it should be very hireable <laughs> it's the plan and hopefully things are recovering by then maybe, so maybe work for harbor air where you get dock hands to wrangle the plane <laughs> yeah i know gosh yeah so, so where do you see yourself in a, a couple of years or 10 to 15 years in aviation yeah it's like it's uh, my plan has changed so many times and you know it's been really good like being out here it's given me kind of a bit more insight to what like the bush life is more like and um like part of me i still like really like the idea of going to africa and doing that kind of thing and saving animals uh but then another, you know there's so many other things in aviation i still want to do like I, I would love to get more involved in aerobatics and 
you know, I'd love to own my own plane, as you know, I'm always asking about that. So that's definitely high on my priority list. And uh, I just don't know how feasible that is as a bush pilot. So the airline life definitely has some aspects to it that are very appealing for those kind of things. And being, you know, and I'd still love to do my heli conversion down the road like that. You know, now that I've had a break from school, I'm like, oh, I could go back for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'd, like, I... Don't know if I'd go straight into like working in helicopters or if it would just be fun to just be able to fly them, but that's definitely still in the bucket list. So it's, you know, the airline has has its appeals for all of that. And, you know, people always kind of, it's always like the debate people are like, oh, well, it's so boring in the airlines. But I'm like, yeah, but you have half the month off to do the fun flying, like the actual fun flying you want to be doing, not like, you know, when you get a charter or enough cargo to go. Like, so it's always that toss up. So, I kind of just take it as it goes and see what happens, see see who's hiring after all this. So I'm just kind of I'm pretty open to change. I don't like when people get so stuck in like, oh, you know, you want to do a bush file, you got to be stuck in that role. So I'm down to just kind of see where it goes. And I also kind of have this little theory that because uh, <laughs> I, you know, one day when I'm pondering, I was like, I wonder what it takes to be an astronaut, because that would be pretty cool. And I looked into it, it's a ton of schooling, there's no way I'm going to do all that schooling, but I have this theory that, you know, with uh, tourism becoming, like, space tourism becoming a thing, and, like, everyone's leading to that, as either it's going to go fully automated, or B, there's going to be an astronaut shortage, and I think they'll lower the criteria. <laughs> So, we'll see that opportunity, you know, so if that opportunity came up, I don't know if I'd say no. We'll see. We'll just see what happens in the world. (laughs) I don't know if you've read Chris Hadfield's book, uh, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, but uh, that has a ton of stuff about what it takes to be an astronaut, and it's fascinating how much much they put into it. Oh, for sure. I think it, yeah. yeah, And some of them don't even get to go to space. Yeah. I know that's like super sad part. I think like you really have to love science and that side of it too, because you know you won't necessarily ever go to space. It, I, like I think, which I don't think I have that side of it to me. So I don't think it's a realistic thing unless I was doing little shuttle tours to show tourists what space looks like. Yeah, but yeah, I definitely haven't. I've come around more to the airlines. Yeah. So what advice would you have for somebody kind of going through your path and uh, aspiring to be a pilot? Uh, aspiring to be a pilot. Um, definitely, I, it's like as far as the schooling goes, I really think it's got to be something you really want. Um, you know, you so, see so many students that go into it and, you know, don't finish. And I think it's a lot of people, you know, they think it could be a good career for the money or for whatever. But I don't think that's a good reason. It's got like, you got to love it, I think. So I think whenever people message me or ask me about like getting into it, what they should do, I'm always like, oh, go for a fan flight. And it's usually pretty clear. I think after your first fan flight, like people that come down, they're like, yep, this is something I want to do. Or, you know, the people that come down are like, ooh, I'm not really sure. Like, I didn't really like this part of it. You know, then I'm like, oh, maybe it's like not the career for you kind of thing. And I, I wish someone had told me how in the you know, the first few years of flying, you're not going to make very much money. It's definitely, I think everyone assumes pilots like, oh, you're making six figures easy. That is definitely not the case. <laughs> and, uh, I wish yeah. someone had told me that earlier on. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I, like there's lots of scholarships out there, especially for women. There's tons of women specific ones because they're trying to kind of bridge that gap. Um, 
I think women do have a lot of opportunity in it. I don't, I really don't think it's that sexist of an industry. Um, I think, you know, there obviously are sexist things that have happened, but I think a lot of time people just love to jump on the bandwagon and, you know, get on the men hating streak. And sometimes it gets a little blown out of proportion. Um, and I think that kind of thing actually like kind of takes away from the real cases of, uh, you know, discrimination in the field. And I think a lot, you know, a lot of companies are trying to change that. So they're trying to hire more women and they're really trying to be inclusive. And like, you know, one of the companies here, my friend, she was on like the first like all female crewed uh, plane the other day. It's like a medivac crew. So it was like the paramedics were women, the captain was women, the first officer. So it's good. You see more and more of that every day. Um, so I think it's just a matter of time. And as far as like when I was in the schools, um, I felt like there was new girls there every day. I was like, how is there a shortage of women? Like, they're everywhere. <laughs> um, so I definitely think we're coming <laughs> in that sense. Um, but yeah, sorry, I'm getting off track, but circling back. Yeah, there's tons of scholarships. Um, I think even I've seen more and more that are uh, a little more geared towards private and commercial, whereas I had a really hard time finding those. Um, and especially like I've seen like one friend, you know, she's a single mom. She's gotten a ton of scholarships just uh, through like that aspect. So when you're looking for them, look for anything. Like I looked for like, you know, just general schooling ones. And sometimes aviation will fall under those categories and qualify. Um, so don't just limit yourself to the aviation ones. Um, you can look at other companies, like you know, like Air Canada will have them. I think Ken Bork does some scholarship stuff like that. There's lots of companies will host them. And always like checking back. I've done lots of the websites um, kind of hide them when they're not open to applications and then you can't see it. And then it's only, so that's like, I used to make myself schedules and check every like couple months for, uh, for new opportunities. Sorry, I'm being attacked by my dog right now. <laughs> She's tired of being ignored. <laughs> um, and then as far as training, um, one of my big things I always tell people is when you're going to school, like it depends on the school, obviously. Like Squamish, you don't really get, you know, there's only a couple instructors, so you don't really get to choose who you're flying with. You kind of get assigned. And some schools will be that way. Um, but then others, lots of the bigger schools where they have like 20 instructors, you can kind of book with who you want. So... And I, I know I wasted some money flying with an instructor I really didn't mesh with. Just like our learning and teaching styles were just very different. And I think he confused me for months to come. <laughs> kind of thing, even once I went back to other instructors. Um, so I always say book like... Uh, book a few lessons with a few different instructors like right off the bat before you even meet any of them so it doesn't make any weird like you know you don't need to have that conversation of oh I'm switching instructors it's just like oh I'm meeting a few of them and then I'll work with who works the best with me um so I always say that because your nice. first few flights are going to be the same no matter what instructor you're with so those are totally like it's not like you're wasting time you're still going to be learning stuff um and then you can find an instructor you really mesh with and it'll save you money in the long run um, so that's a big one I always really say. Uh, I ended up flying at a, quite a few different schools and uh, I think it was kind of good because I learned very different things at different schools and um, you know so I did like my night riding in Victoria mostly because I couldn't in Squamish but uh, you know I definitely got to deal with way different airspace there and you know and doing the tailwheel training in the U.S. dealing with completely different airspace again it's just a uh, at least even getting you to see some of it um, rather than getting so comfortable at one airport and then like the rest can be so intimidating you know other than like your few cross countries you've done <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so yeah it's like getting cool. as many different experiences as you can and just even like hanging out at the schools more you know so you'll meet other pilots and people will take you flying like 
people love to help in this industry, I think. You just got to be around and personable. Um, and then jobs. I, I think in like your first jobs, you got to be creative. And, you know, there's going to be a thousand other new pilots applying for that, you know, that job that'll take on a brand new pilot. And so you got to make yourself stand out. And so, you know, like send the donut donuts. box idea, I think it worked really well. Yeah, send donuts. But, you know, like I, I had a bunch of different little gimmicks I was going to try. And it's not even like, you know, it's just so that you're memorable, even if they just remember your name, even if they're not hiring right away. But then, you know, when the position does pop up and, you know, if you send your resume again, they're like, oh, remember this chick? She sent the, you know, sent the donuts or sent this or did that, you know? So it's, uh, I think it's really good to do that, especially when I was getting advice for resumes. Um, you know, a lot of the, the older people were like, no, no, you know, don't do this. Don't do that. They're very like set in a very professional resume, which like if you're applying to Air Canada, great, like definitely follow that advice. But sometimes these little mom and pop companies, like they want to know that you're personable and someone they can hang out with on the day to day because you're going to be spending every day with them. So, you know, that side of it's more important. Nice. And obviously once all this COVID stuff's over, if you can like go in person, super key. <laughs> <laughs> then you won't yeah. end up with uh, well, that's good whole, advice yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah i don't know what else to say about that that that's great <laughs> yeah I think, it, I think it's good to hear from people who are out there um just getting their feet wet in the industry and learning yeah. all these things and experiencing different things so yeah yeah and yeah, networking as much as you can. I've recently like revisited LinkedIn, which I kind of thought was a waste of time back in the day, but in aviation, it doesn't seem to be. So it's definitely a great way to like get in touch with pilots that, or like chief pilots even, but you know, other people in the industry and, um, and even just like following news on what airlines are doing or what different companies are doing. So you can follow all your companies and kind of get more specific news that I was like before I was like, how do people hear about this information that's going on in this company or that company? And so you can really Really tailor it to that on there nice yeah well i hope you uh, stay warm in the yeah. found and uh we'll see you back in bc at some point yeah oh yeah before we go i, I should have mentioned this earlier but i wanted to talk about um the whole student loan thing like i was saying oh, yeah. how uh uh they kind of base it off time um so yeah so uh, i guess a friend of a friend of mine uh I kind of reached out or he had started, he was looking at uh, getting into flying and uh, ran into some finance issues and he was trying to get student loans and like the big perks of student loans are the fact that you don't need a co-signer and you don't have to pay it back till you're actually working in your industry, uh, which would be super handy in aviation. Um, but unfortunately with their kind of, I feel like out of date rules, it doesn't, it's not really applicable to us. And even that person in particular, he had applied to multiple ones and they all wanted co-signers and stuff that they normally wouldn't ask for for a student loan. Um, so my friend forwarded me all the information and I guess uh, he emailed uh, basically the BC finance minister and wrote him a letter about his struggles with all of it. And uh, they were super interested and they want to bring it to opposition next spring. And uh, so the more letters that they have uh, to kind of bring to opposition, the better for our case. Uh, so they asked me to write a letter. Uh, so I sent one along, just kind of outlined, you know, my difficulties getting through aviation and, and like my finance struggles in the beginning and that kind of thing and how much like student aid would have really helped and I know Chinook Aviation got on board and they wrote letters um, so the more people I can do it and if anyone outside of BC is listening I highly recommend doing it with your province as well um, but uh, for those in BC the guy you want to email is uh, Mike Dijon 
hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Um, but uh, his email is mike.dijong.mla at leg.bc.ca. And um, maybe we can put a little note in the show links for them too, in case I talk too fast. <laughs> um, but the more letters he gets, the better. Yeah, I'll, def- I'll definitely put that in there. And yeah, the funding is based on the program length and aviation can be a fairly quick program. Um, so you don't get the full funding like a four-year student would. Yeah, and even like my friend, for example, she started in a university in an aviation program and uh, she was approved for like, you know, X amount of student loans because she was in an approved university. And then uh, she ended up switching to Chinook and uh, and then her funding got cut down like, you know, over $10,000 because she switched schools but was still doing essentially the same training. So it's it's just kind of like a bad gray zone in the, in the industry or like in the, um, in the uh, loan scene, I guess. But yeah, if anyone has any questions, I'm like totally happy to like share my letter and that kind of thing. So people are welcome to reach out to me on Instagram or at my email and uh, I'll be happy to share kind of what I did. And I don't know if it's right, but at least uh, I know I went off other people's examples. So if I can help, I will. Sweet. So where can f- people follow you? on instagram and stuff what's your what's your tag or your handle yeah it's it's uh, at katie.cali and uh yeah if anyone wants to reach out to me an email it's katie s vogel uh vogel's like v-o-g-e-l at gmail.com nice well thanks for joining me today that was uh it's fun to hear your story and yeah thank you so I'm much sure for having be, me uh, lots more stories you can catch up again in another year yeah for sure i'm sure i'll have a few more by then <laughs> Thanks again for being a loyal listener. Did you know March is Women of Aviation Month? In normal times, there are usually a lot of great events to get young girls and women up in aircraft for the first time. This year, it's going online, and you can find out more at womenofaviationweek.org. Pass on your love of aviation and inspire someone new to explore the skies this month. If you've got questions or feedback about the podcast, please feel free to get in touch by email, podcast at flyingbc.com, or message me on Instagram at Flying British Columbia. I'd love to hear what flying adventures you've got planned in the coming year. And I've got a few announcements I'll be making soon too, including a Flying BC Mountain Adventure Camp this summer. Stay tuned for more on that once all the details are in place. And now, you have control. <laughs>